All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the new Massey Tunnel announced this week by the B.C. government, a new eight-lane tunnel under the Fraser to replace the current four-lane Massey Tunnel, one of the Lower Mainland's worst traffic bottlenecks. $4.15 billion is the cost. It will not be ready until the year 2030. Hopefully, I'm still alive to see this project come to fruition if it does i mean who knows it might be driving anti-gravity cars through the tunnel if it takes this long now let's see if we can get this straight here we could have had a 10 lane bridge over the river for 3.5 billion it would have been open this spring now we'll have an eight lane bridge for over 4 billion so we get a smaller crossing for more money this is apparently a cause for celebration uh, by the B.C. government. Let's discuss now with my guest, Todd Stone, Liberal MLA Kamloops North, South Thompson. Uh, he's the former Minister of Transportation. Todd, thank you for coming on. Uh, good morning, Mike. Okay, let's talk about this idea of the bridge versus the tunnel, and I know you're still a supporter of the bridge idea. Let me play a clip here for you of Transportation Minister Rob Fleming, on the show yesterday and here he is speaking about why uh the tunnel idea is better than a bridge why i asked him why not a bridge here's what he had to say this is a better project and this is the project that the region wanted uh this is a good technology that is safe and reliable it will have uh, rapid bus technology integrated for the first time uh, as well active transportation link cycling and pedestrian access uh uh, through the tunnel, will be will connect on both sides of the Fraser. Okay, why do you disagree with him, Todd Stone? Well, uh, what uh, Rob is saying there is uh, is uh, is largely uh, false. Uh, to characterize the former uh, ten lane uh, bridge project as uh, as an inferior project is is just frankly ridiculous on on, on many fronts. Uh, this was a 10-lane bridge compared to the 8-lane tunnel. Uh, the 8-lane tunnel won't actually give you any additional uh, lanes. Um, you're, you're still going to have uh, you're going to have two dedicated transit lanes, which means you're going to have three uh, three lanes in each direction. Um, uh, you've got that right now. When you put counterflow in, we had 500 million dollars baked into our budget uh, for transit improvements. Uh, it, it had rail rapid transit capability for the future. There were massive yeah. upgrades up and down Highway 99. And to his point about uh, uh, pedestrian and cycling and, and so forth, active transportation, we, um, uh, we incorporated that into the, into the plan as well. That was all part of this, of this project. So, you know, people are getting uh, an inferior uh, project uh, for $1.55 billion more uh, that's going to take another 10 years uh, to build compared to this 10-lane bridge that would be opening up next year. Let me ask you about the rapid transit option, and I discussed this in detail with the minister on the show yesterday. So the bridge that your government had approved would have been capable to have a train go over it, right? Like you would have been able to put like a light rail train over it. Is that right? Absolutely. It was built so that uh, future SkyTrain expansion uh, could be could be added very right. so you could put you could put SkyTrain a, a heavy SkyTrain over it as well. Is that correct? Absolutely correct. Yeah. Okay. 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 And this tunnel does not have that option. What 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 kind of impact does that have? Well, you know, the, the minister said in his in his interview with you yesterday that um, uh, you know that 
they'll look at, uh, at at expanded rapid bus service and so forth. That, right. that gets you to a certain point. Um, it gets you to a certain level of, 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 uh, of transit ridership and growth. Um, when you look at the, the population growth projections uh, uh, in the lower mainland, particularly south of the Fraser, that's just not going to be good enough. And it's not going to take another 10 or 20 years for it not to be good enough. It's not good enough today. Uh, there should be rail uh, capability built into yeah. this project now so that it can be it can be there uh, in the in the not too distant future uh, for for riders uh, or for the, for the public in in the uh, south of the Fraser. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I think that's one of the big missed opportunities here is the lack of a rail option here going forward. Let me play another clip here here for you from the minister yesterday, and this gets into the dispute about whether the the bridge actually would have been even cheaper than the $3.5 billion budget that the previous government approved because the Liberals, guys like yourself and others, have been saying for a while that the bid came in actually under budget, under budget significantly. It had come in $900 million under budget, so it was going to cost even less. Now, I put that to the minister yesterday I said, how come, you know, the bridge was going to be even cheaper than 3.5 billion because the bids came in under budget. And here's what he told me. It never went to procurement. That bewilders me. So I think there's a little bit of urban mythology going on here. The fact is that it never went to the market. There were no bids. It never went to procurement. $3.5 billion in, in 2014 terms is, is, is the same as, as the cost of this project. Okay. There, there were no bids, he says. It never went to procurement. So what are you guys talking about? <laughs> well, with all due respect to the minister, uh, you know, I, I, when I was uh, when I was growing up and, and I uh, knew something, uh, I knew the facts on something and I said the opposite. Uh, you know, my mom had a pretty, a pretty uh, clear uh, statement as to what that what that is. Right. That's not telling the truth. And that's a nice way of saying it. Uh, the fact of the matter is I'm looking at a briefing note uh, dated June 13th, 2017. I actually publicly released this uh, uh, in the summer of 2017. I released it again in 2018. Uh, it, it's a decision note with, from within the Ministry of Transportation from when I was still the minister. And uh, in it, uh, it, it says uh, as follows. Uh, the, the, the project uh, in June 2016, uh, approval was received for TI Corp to procure and deliver the project on behalf of the province. A two-phase procurement process, request for qualifications and request for proposals began in June 2016, culminating in the receipt of two financial proposals in the spring of 2017. So there, we were we were well advanced uh, uh, in terms of the procurement process uh, for this for this project, and for the minister to, to suggest otherwise, he's 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 frankly uh, uh, not not telling the truth on that. Okay, so what would have been the the potential cost of the bridge then? What was the bid that came in that you accepted? Well, the original pro- the original project uh, uh, F was uh, was three point five billion dollars, as you right. know. Right. Um, again, reading from this uh, briefing note, uh, it, it says, and I quote, uh, the lowest proponent price is significantly lower, approximately $900 million less than the original uh, project estimate. Um, that, that is because uh, the, the lowest price proposal reflects an innovative approach planned by the proponent, including an alignment immediately upstream of the current tunnel. Uh, and that enables the reduced work uh, work over live traffic, reduced main span, uh, span length, reduced okay. substructure and foundation components. I mean, on and on it goes, Mike. I'm just to make the point. Yeah. Uh, it, it, why the minister would come out and knowing full well that his 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 staff and and the the hardworking folks in the ministry would have would have told him otherwise. For him to come out and misrepresent 
the situation on the ten lane bridge project. It's just uh, it, it's 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 not not that's not that's so, not yeah, a okay. responsible thing for a minister to do. Right. So you're just you're flat out denying what he said here on the show yesterday. You're saying the project did go out for procurement, the bids did come in, and you you would have been able to build it for what? So by my math, two point six billion. Is that right? Two two yes two two point six billion uh, and. You know, again, uh, we were we were uh, literally within weeks of of, um, of being able to actually uh, select okay. that that final bidder and 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 award the tender and and then something called an election uh, got in the way. <laughs> okay, uh, and we know what happened since that point. Okay, I spoke to um, your colleague Kevin Falcon on the show earlier this week about this. That uh, who's running for the Liberal leadership? I think you're supporting him for le- Liberal leader, right, Falcon? Uh, yes, uh, you yeah. bet I am. Okay, I thought so. Okay. Um, one of the things that Fleming went after the transportation minister yesterday said, "Well, Falcon is uh, is another guy who's offside on on his comments here because, you know, Falcon was the guy who wanted to actually extend the life of the existing tunnel, and now he's flip flopped and he's talking about this bridge would have been better. He's all over the map. Let me play a clip here for you, Rob Fleming, the transportation minister yesterday, and I'll get your thoughts." Kevin Falcon proposed twinning uh, the Massey Tunnel. That was his his uh, project that never advanced uh, back in 2006. So he's obviously had a change of heart or is playing politics as he's pandering for uh, leadership votes. Uh, it's a lot different than what he said before. But uh, look, we did. A well, that was 15 years, ag- 15 years ago, and he did change his position. Sure. He, supports the, he supports the bridge. Sure, but I don't know if Kevin Falcon is an environmental expert. We did have five environmental reviews that were part of his business case. Okay, so going after Falcon there is likely to become the next liberal leader. Your response? Uh, well, yeah, look, it, that was 15 years ago, uh, and and circumstances change, and and I think that that's exactly what happened with this project. Since that time, we actually took uh, over a four-year period. When I became minister in 2013, we we uh, we went to work. Uh, we did uh, we completed an environmental assessment uh, process, with the, which included 33 conditions. Uh, we concluded the agricultural land Com- committee process. There were 13 conditions there. We were well uh, engaged with First Nations, uh, uh, rightfully so. We, we completed the engineering work. We were well advanced in the in the procurement stage, uh, our process for this for this project, uh, and it was and it was ready to go. It, it would be open uh, next uh, next next year. Instead, yeah. people are going to get uh, a, a tunnel that's that's not going to provide any additional capacity. Uh, no rail rapid transit capability. Uh, it'll it'll cost 1.55 billion dollars more. Um, and remember, it doesn't it doesn't even include any of these uh, or most of these significant upgrades along uh, along uh, the, the Highway 99 corridor. And and we'll okay. maybe have this open and use ten years from now. I mean, it, it, it's it, what a what a what a misguided uh, decision it was to delay or to not do the bridge uh, in 2017. And then to delay things for four years, and now to come out with this uh, with this ridiculous tunnel tunnel uh, proposal. Thank you for coming on today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Uh, okay, Liberal MLA Todd Stone. There, he's the former Minister of Transportation who approved the uh, bridge idea that's now been cancelled. All right, let's talk about the coyote attacks in Stanley Park. It almost seems like this is almost nearly a, a daily basis. We get these reports of someone else has been bitten by a coyote in the park. The latest report, a senior citizen here now, 69-year-old man, a bitten in the park while he was walking in the park. The Conservation Officer Service of BC issuing another warning to the public, uh, strongly urging people to stay out of stanley park this is coyote territory here now don't go in the park is what officials are telling people have a listen to this now this is why is this happening why are we seeing so many attacks 
We've had like 34 attacks just this year. Nadia Zanakis uh, from the Ecolo- Stanley Park Ecological Society here speaking to our own Jill Bennett on why this is happening here with her thoughts. We know for a fact that there is an abundance of wildlife feeding um, and that people are encroaching in a lot of areas of the park where maybe wildlife kind of was left alone for a while and they might be being pushed out of these areas. Um, we also know that people are coming to the park at all hours of the park in large groups um, and there is um, partying activity, loud activity happening that may drive animals further out as well. Okay, there are two groups forming over this issue. Some people are saying leave the coyotes alone. There's a petition drive online. Do not have any more coyote calls. The conservation officer did, officer service did uh, call a couple, a few coyotes there. Uh, other people, though, saying it's time for this to stop and all the coyotes should be taken out. There are competing online petitions on this issue uh, now. Okay, let's discuss. We got both sides of it for you. Bill Thielman, president of Westar Communications. I'm pleased to welcome him back on this. Bill, thanks for coming on. Morning, Mike. Also on the line is Leslie Fox. Leslie is the executive director of the Fur Bears of BC, and I, I appreciate her time again. Leslie, thank you for being here. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Okay, it's nice to have you both back, Bill. Let me go to you first. So here we go again with another attack. And where does this take the issue now? Do you think this increases the urgency on this file? Well, Mike, we're, we're approaching 40 people, human beings, children, elderly people, others, attacked by coyotes, uh, wild coyotes, in Stanley Park, in our crown jewel of Vancouver of Parks. And it's time for it to stop. And so we have to take more serious action. The fact that the conservation services have uh, taken out uh, up to six of these coyotes and the attacks continue, indicate that these coyotes in Stanley Park uh, are habituated to humans. They are willing to attack humans as a possible source of food, and they have to be removed. Okay, they're taking out six now? I thought they took out four. Are they I take out two more? on the TV news last night. Okay, so Leslie, is that correct? Have they, have they taken out six, fo- uh, six coyotes now? Yes, that's true. There were four okay. recently, and two were uh, trapped and killed a few months back. Okay, Leslie, your thoughts? I, I mean, I, I think you know we have a divisive issue. That's for sure. But I think where the common ground is is nobody wants people getting hurt. So, and I, I think it's from there that we work. And and. If we truly want to prevent this, the question is why this is happening. Coyotes don't just bite people. There's coyotes all over Vancouver, all over North America, and they rarely go, um, you know, it, 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 we rarely hear about these types of issues. It just happens to be so concentrated in this park. And so begs the question, why? And instead of focusing on the coyotes, I'd encourage people to shift the conversation and focus on governance. How is, it, how is it that this has even happened for this long? Why is this so out of hand? And I don't think we have a coyote problem. I think we have a governance problem. And, and quite frankly, the Parks Board, the Ministry of Forests and Lands, and to some degree, the BC Conservation Officer Service um, need to take control. Okay. And um, they're, they're not. Okay, I think one of the things that's troubling is when you hear reports about people feeding the coyotes in the park, and Nadia Zanakis uh, talked to Jill Bennett about, about that too. It, it may surprise you to learn that they're not ticketing people for that. And here she is talking about should we be able to ticket people for feeding these animals. Have a listen to this. 
currently a bylaw is in the process of being amended so that you can ticket for wildlife feeding. Um, and the park is looking at piloting garbage proof bins and then expanding out. Um, with things like this, though, what takes time is, you know, you have to change sanitation um, retrieval and things like that as well. So um, absolutely, these will help. They just won't be instant overnight fixes, but it's something we're definitely working towards. Okay, Bill, does it surprise you that they, they don't have a ticketing process? Like if you feed wildlife in that park, you should be slapped to the ticket, I think. Well, Mike, I'm looking at a at a actual park board uh, sign on from Global News uh, online right now, and it says feeding wildlife is illegal. So I don't understand that. Uh, certainly, it must Weird. be a BC law if it's not a park board law. But listen, uh, Leslie and I will agree on a couple of things. One, anybody feeding coyotes should go to jail. I mean, this is insane. Uh, clearly, there should be serious penalties for that. Number two, yes, we should be dealing with refuge garbage, food left yeah. over in a much more serious way. I'd agree. I would agree with her on that. But the problem is that. We cannot, uh, in, in any meaningful way, completely control human behavior in our largest park. And people are going to accidentally leave food scraps and things like that around. And for whatever reason, these coyotes have, have decided that uh, they're not happy with the scraps anymore. They want to go for a full meal. And uh, it's going to happen if we don't do something. So the fact that um, they can't even ticket people for feeding coyotes is, is crazy. That's, that's, that's insane. I, I think it's ridiculous. They don't have garbage-proof uh containers or animal proof garbage cans in the park either that's ridiculous that's a no-brainer so bill you therefore think that they should call the coyotes correct? absolutely yeah I mean, it's the only thing yeah. that it's the only alternative left now i mean it's one thing to say we should educate people etc but uh, by the time we finished educating uh, thousands and thousands of people who go to stanley park um we'll have uh, i i fear we'll have a child attacked and possibly killed or, or seriously injured okay. by coyotes leslie Oh, I think a few things related to the ticketing thing, ticketing. So there's, and, and what Bill's talking about, about the sign with the parks board, and he's right, is is that there's a, per, it's a provincial offense to feed dangerous wildlife that comes under the Wildlife Act. But it's the BC Conservation Officer Service that enforces the Wildlife Act. And quite frankly, the BC Conservation Service, um, this isn't their job. They're, they're not wildlife managers. It's their policing agency under the Ministry of Environment. And so that responsibility needs to fall to the municipality. And in right. Vancouver, we don't have any feeding bylaws in Vancouver, which I find completely outrageous just because most other municipalities our size do. Um, and because there's no mechanism, there's no bylaw, um, there's nothing for bylaw officers or park rangers to enforce. And so there's a big, big gap there. But, but I think, you know, I, just even how you open the show, conservation says stay out of the park. No one's listening. Are you kidding me? There's, there's boundaries set up. There's tape set up. People walk over it. There's signs. They're, they're spotty. They're infrequent. We have tourists coming into the city who might not be re- able to read English so well, or they might not see the signs. I think, I think first and foremost, we need to just shut down the park, get control of the situation, figure out what's going on. And I think in terms of, of the suggestion of let's go in and kill all the coyotes, it kind of reminds me, you know, right now we've got these fires and fires on everybody's mind. I can't even begin to explain to people how many animals are dying in that fire right now. And, and the wildlife that this province is losing. We've got a report issued from the UN about climate change. Um, or all these horrible things are happening to our environment. And it makes me really angry that humans have such an, 
a horrendous intolerance and, and complete disregard that and, 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 and audacity that we can just go around and kill our way out of every problem. And given the state of the world and given the pressures on wildlife, I, isn't a new approach needed? Isn't a new way of thinking needed if we're ever to reconcile our relationship with the natural world? Okay, Bill. And isn't there better a time well, to do that than now? Well, well the Bill. new approach is to actually euthanize the coyotes in Stanley Park, and they're very intelligent animals. You look on all the different websites, including uh, Leslie's, and it says they're very intelligent, they learn, etc. So if they see that they're their tribe, their group uh, of coyotes has, uh, has, is being uh, killed, is disappearing, they're going to stay out of the park. I mean, that makes, only makes sense. But what, what hasn't been tried until the last short while is actually taking them out of the park with conservation service hunting them and, and trapping and, and killing them because they are too dangerous to be left out in the wild and they have to be removed for that reason. I don't take any pleasure out of that. I don't, I, I'm not happy about it, but there's no other solution. And the solutions that Leslie has mentioned are clearly not working or we wouldn't have this problem what? with up to 40 attacks this year. What do you think, Bill, about Leslie's argument that people are not listening to the directions that have been laid out by the conservation service? They've put up, they put up taped barriers, tape barriers, try and keep people out and people just ignore it. I mean, is it reasonable, to, like you mentioned that Stanley Park is over 120 years old or something and the crown jewel of Vancouver, is it reasonable to tell people to stay out? No, it's it's not reasonable at all, Mike. I mean, the fact that there are some bad players, some foolish people who are doing the wrong things, uh, doesn't mean that, that the overwhelming majority, 99% of people who enjoy Stanley Park and are respectful and take their food and garbage with them and, and dispose of it properly, should suffer as a result. And But more importantly, uh, you know, people will, will do what they're going to do, but they haven't been attacked by coyotes in past years, and now they are being yeah. attacked by coyotes, and it's pretty clearly a changed situation, and that requires a change in tactics. Okay, Leslie, what do you say to that argument that, you know, this is an urban park that's creating for human enjoyment it's not like a wildlife area remote wildlife this is this is vancouver this is a large urban park so i mean i don't know it sort of gets down to like team team coyote versus team human here but and we why, need to why stop should that we so, positioning we need to why? stop that 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 rhetoric mike you can't say that you have a responsibility as a media host and and to pit one against the other is is at the core our problem. It's about coexistence. It's about acknowledging Vancouver was carved out of a rainforest. It's not us versus them. We all have to live together, and, and we need to be approaching this situation through that lens and through, through that mindset and with that intention. We can't sterilize Vancouver. Um, I want to address a couple things that Bill said, and Bill is a very ineffective debater because he, he undoes his own arguments. So Bill had just said that, you know, coyotes, if we kill them, they learn and they see their, you know, their friends are disappearing, so they'll go away. We've killed six. There's not that many coyotes that live in Stanley Park. We've killed six. They don't, it, it's not working. And we haven't tried what I've suggested. We've tried what Bill suggested. We've killed coyotes, and it's not working. So we need to expedite <clears throat> the other solutions and it and this idea of and listening to Nadia's tape about well that takes time it shouldn't take time and and I don't know why the city or the province for that matter doesn't just hit the big red button and stuff moves overnight we could clear out all those cans and fix them overnight we could have signs everywhere we could zone 
um, you know, sections of the park to keep people more on trail. We could pass a bylaw. We could stop up enforcement. Um, okay. Things okay. could move if, if they wanted to. Last point. Don't yeah. say the word euthanasia. Euthanasia is a very specific term that's defined to end suffering. That's not the case here. So let's call it what it is, and it's killing animals. This okay. isn't euthanasia is misplaced. All right, welcome back as we continue talking about the coyote attacks in Stanley Park with my guests, Leslie Fox, Bill Thielman. Let's go right to your phone calls here. Sue and Burnaby. Hi, Sue, what do you think? I'm thinking that the coyotes could be starving. Maybe they there's no food resources left in the park. Leslie, is that possible? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know that they would be starving. I think I think there's quite a lot of natural food sources for them. So coyotes predominantly eat rodents. So rats, mice, you know, uh, voles, even squirrels, potentially rabbits, birds. Um, even some plants, berries. So I, I don't think that that's the case. I think it could be the case potentially they're accessing unnatural food sources. And we know um, feeding is a problem, so human food um, and, and people people feeding food. It, um, Sue brings up a good point, though, that there could be some underlying maybe health problem or, or um, physical problem uh, and, and not something we don't know yet. Let's go to Bernie on the line in Mission. Hi, Bernie. Good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Um, sure. I'm quite dismayed at the prospect that an animal, any animal, would uh, pay with its life for the fact that we've created a scenario that has seen them habituated towards us, towards humans, number one. Number two, um, Mr. Chilman's assertion that if you kill their friends and family, the rest of them will stay clear of the park. If you know anything about canines and wildlife, is just absurd. Thank you. Bill Tillman, your response. Well, I wanted to respond to some of the things Leslie said, too. First of all, it's not, it's not coexistence we're looking at because the coyotes came here in the 1980s. There were no coyotes in Vancouver, none at all. They came here looking for food. We didn't, we didn't go after them. So they've come here and they need to leave, number one. Number two, uh, euthanasia is, is killing an animal or even a person uh, painlessly, and that's the goal, obviously, of the Conservation Service. So that's what, that's what they've been doing and need to be doing. Uh, in terms of we're paying for, uh, or the coyotes are paying for our human habituation of them is ridiculous. We didn't, uh, they came here. They invaded, they're an invasive species. They came here on their own. They decided this was the happy hunting ground for them, and we're letting them do it. And now we've got a park that's becoming um, completely uninhabitable for, for the people it's supposed to serve. And it's, it's nuts. Let's go squeeze in another call. Ethel on the line in West Van. Hi. Hello. I think we need a multifaceted approach. First of all, let's get the cars back in the park. They're big vehicles. They know they're there. I think it's a deterrent. We're now in a situation where people are being bitten, including children. Maybe they might even develop rabies. We have to get rid of them. We can't put people in danger like this. Okay, we just got a minute left. Thank you for the call. We just have a minute left here. Leslie, you got 30 seconds here to wrap up. I think it's really clear what needs to be done. Everybody out there listening who is invested in this situation needs to put pressure on the Parks Board. We, we, I think we all can agree, no matter what side we're on, we, we need leadership, and, and we, we frankly don't have any right now. Someone, someone needs to really take control of this situation and have a okay. plan and execute the plan quickly. Bill, real quick, 30 seconds yeah. here. Kick, 
coyotes out of Vancouver before a child is kid on change.org. Sign the petition. It's aimed at the Vancouver Park Board, City Council, and Conservation Service. The more signatures, the more likely we are to get action, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about Amazon now, the biggest online retailer in the world. And it's really no contest here when you're talking about the power and the reach of Amazon, founded by Jeff Bezos recognized as the richest human being on the planet his current net worth as calculated by forbes 185 billion dollars us is the current estimate it's 237 billion dollars canadian he has gotten even richer during the pandemic as people turn to more online shopping covid19 has been good for business at Amazon. Now, some people think Amazon is too powerful, that it drives its smaller competitors out of business, that it's bad for local retail stores. But check this out now. Amazon is set to grow even bigger now. Amazon planning to open large physical brick and mortar retail stores in the United States. They will function like department stores and sell a variety of goods, including clothing, household items, electronics. This is according to the Wall Street Journal, which reported this yesterday, uh, citing sources familiar with Amazon's plans. Amazon uh, opening up brick-and-mortar retail stores now, according to the Wall Street Journal. Wow. Uh, let's discuss now with my guest, Brian Borzakowski. Uh, Brian is a freelance business journalist. His uh, work has appeared in the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, uh, Wired Magazine, everywhere, and I'm pleased to welcome him back. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Okay, Brian, what is the latest on this? Amazon opening up uh, brick-and-mortar department stores. I mean, this is kind of surprising for a company that's been built on an online model. The first thing I could think of was, is, uh, you know, the, the saying, what's old is new again, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, it's a bit, and it is a bit ironic that they sort of drive people uh, out of some of these stores, and now they're going to open up their own, but... Um, you know, I think in some ways it's surprising, but um, Amazon has always had trouble. They, they make a lot of money. They don't actually make a lot of money off of their online sales. They have other parts of their business that are doing much better, that really drive the company. There are, you know, cloud computing uh, capabilities and, and, and those sorts of things. So um, this might be a way for them to uh, try and kind of boost sales around items that they may need more help with or just, uh, you know, and I think when we've talked before about some of this stuff, the walk-in traffic is not going anywhere. Um, people still want to go shopping, and maybe Amazon feels, you know, we have an opportunity here. Our brand name recognition is big, um, and perhaps, and we'll have to see that, you know, this is, this is just a Wall Street Journal report. We'll see right. if this actually happens, if there are details. Could they reimagine um, maybe the department store? Maybe there's an online component. You know, it, it could be interesting to see how they combine those both worlds. Okay, this is a very detailed report that the Wall Street Journal released yesterday citing uh, unnamed sources in an exclusive report. They say that Amazon set to open their first physical brick-and-mortar department stores expected in Ohio and California, that these stores would be approximately 30,000 square feet. So you're talking similar in size to like a like a Nordstrom department store or like a Bloomingdale store in New York. I mean, these would be like big stores. It sounds like it sounds like, would these be like little boutique stores to get started? It sounds like they're going big here. I mean, that sounds big. I, I, I wonder, you know, will they structure it in, in a way that, uh, um, 
there are more boutique things inside, but probably not. I mean, I, I assume it'll resemble, you know, the Amazon experience. Um, they're all about the experience, and they're not going to start something brand new. Um, they're going to probably try and carry that over. So, uh, you know, I think those, you know, Nordstrom's, like some of these big department stores, if they can do it right, people still like going. They're, they're, they're fit niche. You know, Nordstrom's isn't everywhere. Um, so can I, does that, is Amazon going to be in every city? Is it going to be like a Walmart? I mean, Walmart is still an extremely major competitor and they have yeah, brick and mortar right. stores sure. and they're the ones, you know, really pushing Amazon and um, they, that Walmart has, a, you know, a very good online component as well, not as good as Amazon's. And, and so Amazon's probably seeing Walmart's, um, and the traffic that still goes through there that has all of those things that you just mentioned, the clothing, you know, all, all the various things. Um, and, uh, and, and probably sees an opportunity there to compete with Walmart, their biggest competitor. Um, and don't forget, I mean, hmm. Amazon is not the first foray into physical space. Amazon did buy Whole Foods, so they own yes. Whole Foods. Whole Foods is a physical store. They've tested out various different kinds of technologies there. You know, like, what is it? You don't have to go through the, the checkout. You just pick stuff up and walk out, and your phone can tell what you're taking. Um, so there could be an opportunity there to bring some of that tech into the department store world. Yeah, no, they they certainly have put their their foot in the water there with their acquisition of Whole Foods. They did at one point sell uh, have physical bookstores, I believe, at at one point as well, and then went on to, of course, dominate the online shopping space in uh, in recent years. But it, it's fascinating to hear this report of Amazon looking at physical brick and mortar department stores, and this is a story that went really went viral yesterday after the Wall Street Journal reported it. And and I wonder, Brian, what kind of what sort of product line Amazon might be thinking about selling in these stores? Uh, we're hearing reports of it, you know, clothing and electronics, as you mentioned. Would those be brand name items that they'd be selling, or because some of the stuff that Amazon sells is under their own their own label, right? Their own Amazon labels. So I wonder if they'd be uh, featuring that prominently in these stores. You know, it's a good question. I think probably, I think probably they'll they'll feature Amazon branded stuff. But they have partnerships with all sorts of different retailers, small and big. I mean, lots of small retailers sell their stuff online on Amazon. Um, will they have an opportunity to get into Amazon stores? Will they, you know, uh, see what products are selling online um, and bring them into the stores? Um, I think that, uh, you know, we'll see how this unfolds. But I think for sure they're going to want to push their own branded stuff. I mean, that's clearly. I think where where uh, you know Amazon is trying to get to, there's been sort of some controversy over that in the past, and I'm um, just you know how are they being can, can they discount their own stuff versus the uh, retailers that put um, their stuff on the site? There's a whole bunch of stories about you know small businesses getting upset with Amazon for some for some of that. Um, but I but I think they definitely want to you know get their get their everyone knows Amazon, but but when you yeah. think about it, like the up until COVID, um, Amazon sales were a fraction of what the total sales were for retail. Um, and, and that's certainly gone up, but they're not 100% of people shopping at Amazon. So they still have work to do to get into people's hearts and minds and wallets. And, and I think this is part of that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. In the Wall Street Journal reporting that some of the Amazon executives that they've apparently talked to uh, told the newspaper that Amazon thinks that going into these physical stores, setting up their own brick-and-mortar department stores could help to attract new customers and and expand their product line and their sales i mean <laughs> they wouldn't be doing it otherwise i guess like when you take a look at for people who don't like amazon already and they think amazon is a, a, a force for evil in the world 
You know, I wonder if they if pe- what people might think about this move now into brick and mortar department stores, and it's almost like you've seen a lot of retail stores go under uh, recently. Maybe as a result of competition with Amazon, maybe as a result of the of the pandemic, and then lo and behold, here comes this giant dominant octopus again, sweeping in to snap up the space that they've created by putting their competitors out of business and saying, now we're going into brick and mortar retail stores. It's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think there's some irony there for sure. I think it's, uh, I think a lot of people are going to be upset with retailers saying like, Hey, you know, we just got out of this because we couldn't compete with you on a, on the web, but uh, now you're going to try and take our lunch physically. But I think it's not going to be a cakewalk. Like I think, you know, there are, again, there's Walmart, there's lots of other stores that have an established brand that don't have the online presence. So yes, they've been kind of hurt by Amazon online, but they've got their um, physical store game doing well. Um, and, and so I don't think it's, they're walking into an industry that is long established. Amazon was the first or one of the first online um, shopping sites and it has had years to refine that and become the thing that they are today. But they're walking into a, uh, a, a you know an industry that is long established, and there are established players there. Not everyone is getting beaten down by Amazon. There's still lots of play- players that are doing well. So I I don't yeah. think it's a given that Amazon is going to you know run over all these companies and be the only department store standing. Okay, we continue to hear the calls for Amazon to be broken up. That maybe anti-monopoly regulators should step in in the United States. There are forces in the U.S. Congress that think Amazon has grown too big, too powerful. I mean, I don't know, Brian. What do you, what do you think? I mean, for every a lot of people out there will shop at Amazon. I've bought some stuff out, off of Amazon over the years, and you know, there's there's a reason why people use this service. I mean, they'll look at the product line, they like the prices, they like the free delivery. In many cases, if you've got Amazon Prime, quick delivery. I mean, what what's not to like about it? But a lot of people will look at it as a as a force for for evil in the corporate world. But what are your thoughts on it? You know, I, I think it's tricky because. Um, I mean, Amazon's not the only one. I, again, Walmart. I mean, they're doing their prices are, are are great. People criticize them because they were able yeah. to buy up in bulk and cheap. And and I don't think the right approach is sort of breaking these companies up. It's maybe providing uh, incentives for other businesses. I think small businesses still have plenty of opportunity here to find niche areas to fill gaps. Amazon doesn't do everything. And um, if you do start breaking things up, then what's the incentive for co- some of these companies to grow? And then what does that mean for consumers? I mean, ultimately, people are um, spending you know less money because some of these products are cheaper and easier to get, and it's helping people in rural communities get access to products that they'd never be able to get to. Not saying you know Amazon's got a lot of problems. Lots of there's been a lot of controversy over kind of the way they treat their employees and, and through COVID and um, their business practices, and those things should be addressed. And those things are real and and um, you know and important. But um, just breaking it up because they're big, I, I don't think is the right way to go. Yeah. What do you think about the brick and mortar kind of retail landscape uh, right now, especially as the pandemic continues? Uh, we see new case counts surging now as a result of this Delta virus. We have seen some big retailers go bankrupt here over the past few years. J.C. Penney, Neiman Marcus, uh, Prime, uh, very prominent on that list. It's difficult, right? I mean physical running a physical store a brick and mortar store retail store is is a tough go how do you read that that market right now 
You know, it, yeah, it's hard. I think a lot of the companies that have run into trouble over the last um, over the last year and a half and before were already into trouble. They 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 were already in debt. They weren't sort of running their business, uh, you know, in, in in maybe the best way. Sears is a good example of that. They're not keeping up with the times, and so some of these businesses were already in trouble, and the, and COVID just accelerated that. Um, I think, you know, companies are, as always, really, are going to have to make sure they're running uh, tight operations, that they're not over-levered in debt, um, and that they're continuing to provide good service and, and good products, and that's no different than any other business. So I think, um, yes, people are definitely gravitating more online. I don't think walking into a store is disappearing anytime soon, and the companies that are going to left standing are the ones that are going to operate their business best and know their customers. And that's really business fundamentals 101. And, uh, you know, companies will drop off, new companies will come. Um, but, I mean, saying all that, for sure, it's tougher than it was, uh, you know, 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Um, but that doesn't mean these businesses are going away. Brian, thanks a lot for your thoughts on it today. Appreciate it. Thank you.